0: Elizabeth, would you please tell me in your opinion exactly what is happening?
1: People are being duplicated. And once it's happened to you, you're part of this thing. It almost happened to me. Look, the reason that you don't believe Elizabeth is because the other body disappeared. Now it disappeared because Jeffrey took it. Yeah, well then what happened to my other body then? But will you please listen to yourselves? Will you please listen to what you're saying? Look, I can deal with a body being moved. I can even deal with a body getting up and leaving, but when you start talking about his other body, her other body, people being duplicated, will you listen to how that sounds?
0: Don't you think we know how insane this sounds? But what do you think we're doing? You think we're making it up?
1: What are you having trouble accepting? You believe that my body looked like me? Do you believe that her body looked like her? You think we've all gone crazy? You are trying to make us believe that we are seeing things. Why no. are you trying to do that?
0: All I'm trying to do is help.
1: That the only thing we have to fear is fear No.
0: Be afraid. Be very afraid.
1: There's nothing to
0: fear except God, whatever that means to you. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? You're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Fear of God podcast. I sure do love this podcast. I hope you do too. Speaking of love, we got a lot of that coming on the pipe in just a minute. Uh, talking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Now, typically with me is your other host, Reed Lackey, but he had to go take the trash out. And, you know, I get it. It's It's just one of those sort of household kind of chores just it's just that time of the week when you got to take the trash out. We we are able to be skyping lately and so I did see this large um kind of garbage truck uh through the window at his place, so I do know it is there to be received. So we will presumably um kind of have Reed back with us here in a minute. Uh in the meanwhile, uh, in his absence, did just want to alert you that by the way you are listening to the Fear of God podcast. Here at the Fear of God, we explore the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us. We do have just a few little bullet points to get to real quickly while we wait on read, one of which, all right, we are officially after Canadian Thanksgiving. It is time indeed for all of our Canadian listeners, Brent, house i'm pretty sure there might be others out there to start posting comfort in the creepy photos so we can repost them thank you so much for having done so those of you who have and as well as comfort in the creepy please leave us an itunes rating or review we would greatly appreciate that Uh, many of you have done so uh some of you have not we know who you are um additionally Go to tpublic.com, search The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. Check out the swag available to make a merch perch. Um, Reed, you're back, buddy. Hey, man. How are you doing? You So you took the trash uh, out.
1: <laughs> Sorry, listeners don't have the advantage of the visual. But, no, uh, what is really is. funny is...
0: I thought you were going to go into like a robo read, you know, like the, the, the body snatcher type version of read. Oh, sure.
1: Of course. So of course.
0: You, the visual of you like pondering whatever you're in, I was like, wow, he's really working on this. And then you went into the vocal. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, okay. oh, oh, that that's, makes more that's, sense.
1: That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, hey, buddy. Hey, um, buddy. So I'm very, oh, my gosh, I am very, very excited to talk about this film. We're going to have a ton to say about this film. We've got a lot to get to beforehand. So what you watching? What you reading? What you listening to? <laughs> All right. Let's wow. move this along.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. You go.
1: Oh, me Or are you nice. asking me? I
0: mean, I guess you're asking well, me. so I'll I will go. Asking All right. You, I'll tell so, you real okay. quick. So we'll, get, we'll, okay. we'll make this happen. So um, <laughs> I'm going to name. This is crazy how much he's getting name dropped accidentally and intentionally. Last week, you referenced Blake. I am also going to reference Blake. Recently, Ah. our our, uh, friend of the fog, I'm coining that myself, you know, like friend of the fog, like not just friend of the pot, friend of the fog. Like it's also a a metaphor. It's like, think about the mist. Like we Mm. walk forward into the Mm -hmm. mist. You kind of become friends with the mist. Like you have to engage it. Like friend of the fog right now. Friend of the fog, Blake Collier, um, in addition to being an all around swell fella, recently tweeted uh, a thing that made me want to go listen to this group so thank you blake for the inspiration i have been listening to several albums by the cold war kids on oh, pretty consistent repeat that's a great band it yeah. is a great band yeah, a great i'm pretty band. i'm yeah. pretty new to these little kids you know oh, and yeah, I mean, they're like great. they're good that's good specifically i've been listening uh, this one i've had in rotation for a solid eight months or so but Added to the rotation recently, but Miss Lonely Hearts is fantastic. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I have had recommended to me Hold My Heart, but I've not dived into that one yet. Um, But uh, L.A. Divine, I'm really enjoying. And the singles off an eminently to be released new album. But, dude, they are killer.
1: There's they something so great. great about discovering a band like that that's kind of been around for a yeah. little while. So you've got all these got something fun to little bore through. Yeah, it's it's really cool because you can you can over listen an album and then you got to wait a couple of years. Like if it's just their their debut album, but you're coming into Cold War Kids where they've got I don't know exactly how long they've been around, but at least twenty years now. Like, cause I remember, no. listen. I no. remember, yeah, I remember I listening it's to them. That long. Well, if not but, twenty, regardless. if not twenty, then possibly like. You know, sixteen. I think 17. the earliest
0: albums I saw was like two thousand nine or ten.
1: Really? Because I, I feel like I listened but again, to them. Yeah. I've
0: only cracked the door on. Gotcha. Because
1: I feel like I listened to them in my days living with my buddy Lee Wright. But uh, yeah, he. It'd be I, really great. It'd be really great in
0: this moment if we were talking about two different bands. <laughs> that would be hysterical. Um, oh wait, wait, wait! You meant. The kids of the Cold War. Oh, it's a different different group. Different it's completely group. There some, completely. There was different some band. competing some competing copyright issues there. Um, I did also real quick want to drop in here. Pfft, Riri, we referenced this about five weeks ago, six weeks ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. I referenced right. the book, and you tagged on the pod. Um, I am going to fervently impose the pod as my what your listening oh uh-huh. another another name for everything read like oh
1: yeah it's a great podcast it's,
0: it really is have you yeah. have you continued to listen have you
1: i am continuing to listen but i'm not caught up i'm about five episodes left to get fully caught up man so, yeah
0: i oh my gosh it <laughs> is it is like deeply ministering to to mm. me um like i will take notes Not like actively, like sit there, listen, and write down things. But as in, you know, I will kind of pull up the notes app and and jot down great quotes. And and, uh, anyone unfamiliar, Richard Rohr, who has clearly been on my brain and heart a lot lately, uh, has a podcast that's tying into the themes of his book, The Universal Christ, called Another Name for Everything. I read Mm -hmm. The Universal Christ, you know, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, have been consuming this podcast uh, with a fervor and think it's going to be one of those things. I love the packaged nature of it. Like, yeah, the idea to kind of go and re-listen from the standpoint of like, uh, what, what a previous version of me would have just enjoyed from a Bible study standpoint. Like, I just want to continue soaking in this kind of oh, thought and yeah. vibe and, and sort of, but yeah, I love it. Mm. I couldn't recommend it more highly. If you tend to like the places our conversations tend to go and, this, this is the type of stuff you will you will really glom onto.
1: that's yeah so that's me yeah that's me okay so what i have been watching no listeners this is not uh an intentional uh expletive um i have been watching a show that is on netflix it's a pop original series called Shits creek and it is absolutely fantastic <laughs> Shit spelled S-C-H-I-T-T. It refers to the name of a place. Apostrophe and, S. Uh, right. Apostrophe S, yes. And it refers to the name of a place. It refers to the name of uh, a town. The premise of it, it stars uh, Eugene Levy, uh, Catherine O'Hara, uh, and uh, their two children. Have They are rich debutantes, and they have actually been uh, through some mismanagement of their uh, accountant Uh, they he wasn't paying any of their taxes so all of their assets were taken by the government and the only thing they were left with is this town that they bought as a joke it's like a a, this almost worthless little town that they had bought as a joke one year um, and the government was like you can keep that so they go there to live and it's this town called Schitt's Creek so I'm gonna be very very or as brief as I can be about this my wife and I are about three seasons in on this as of this recording. All five seasons that have aired are available on Netflix. Uh, season six will start airing in January. Um, this show, which you would think is by the name and by everything you would think would just be this casual little joke a minute, trivial sort of thing. Um, first of all, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. They are, they are marvelous. They are absolutely marvelous outstanding they've been working together since they i think first met on the set of SC TV uh, obviously we're in a few uh, Christopher <laughs> guest films together i can't uh, i
0: can't think about the two of them and not laugh
1: like no it's it's wonderful i oh, love gosh. him so wonderful. she yeah. is well just okay i wonder and let me tell you something that i love about this i read an interview that was with Catherine O'Hara where they were talking about the nature of their marriage and <laughs> they uh the marriage on the show what oh, they I was wanted say. to craft yeah. yeah what they wanted to craft and she said they kind of have this unspoken agreement that they would make the conflicts arise out of real natural believable things they wanted to avoid what she said um death divorce and drugs so they're like you know all of these like older adult couples it feels like that's all the that, that's all that they ever fight about somebody's had an affair somebody has some sort of problem like that and nathan i love so much this show is is nearly completely uncynical. You wouldn't believe it from the first season because you'd think it's kind of edging up to there, but this show has a heart the size of Texas. It is so <laughs> lovely to watch the pair of them play off of each other. They have genuine affection for each other. Again, the conflicts that sort of arise, they, they feel, they're obviously absurd extremes, but they feel very believable and real the The finale of season two had has uh, a moment, and I'm not going to contextualize it because it's just too much. But um, the finale of season two had a moment where I I was just I was floored by how willing the show was. A show called Shit's Creek that that <laughs> is willing to just I know that is willing to just go full bore into like heart and thoughtfulness. Uh, and remind me, and,
0: so. I've actually only seen probably half a dozen of them. It was funny about, man, I don't know, three months ago. Mm-hmm. This is going to sound like a weird statement. There are times when I'm like, I I assign way too much gravity to everything I do. <laughs> um, and there was one night I was like, man, I don't... Um, it's far too deep into the series The Simpsons for me to just like casually jump mm-hmm. into it. I was like, I just sure. want something sure. that... Is light and airy, but that I'll know I'll enjoy. You know what okay, I mean? Like sure. I, it, yeah, of it, course, of course. it wasn't like let me test out this show and <laughs> yeah. kind of dip out. Yeah. I, I love Eugene Levy, I love Catherine O'Hara, so I had no doubt like I will enjoy this. Right, but I haven't like waited way into the series. Sure. What sure. is the what is the stats on a given season like? Eight episodes, thirteen each. But they're all, thir- yeah. So, oh, okay, okay.
1: yeah, so thir- about thirteen each. I think seasons four and five are fourteen each, but um, you know, twenty minute episodes. So it it it's, God, they're so fun, and it, it it binges pretty quickly. Got to give a shout out before we leave the show to their the people who play their son and daughter, Dan Levy, who yes is Eugene Levy's real son, really, and helped, yeah, helped co create wow. the show. Um, that's awesome and and he is at present where we are I love all of the characters but his character David is my favorite I, I love him so so much he's wonderful um, their daughter played by Annie Murphy um, plays their daughter Alexis she's wonderful and charming uh, they're just it, it's it's a wonderful and amazing show it is so worth your continued investment I also have to mention although she's a, a smaller character in the scheme of things um, his daughter Eugene Levy's daughter Sarah Levy also plays uh, the uh, owner operator of the local diner that's funny um, yeah uh, Twyla oh, diner Yeah, like a diner, restaurant, you know, type thing. Early in the
0: series, there's, like, the hotel owner. Is
1: that her name? No, 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 no. No, The hotel owner is played by uh, Emily Hampshire, and she plays Stevie, and she's adorable. Um, No, the Sarah Levy, Eugene Levy's daughter, plays Twyla. Okay, uh, I don't think I've met her yet. But, uh, man, it is so worth—the first season is funny and charming and cute and whatever. By the time it hits season two— it um, it is it is full-blown, like, I love this show. Again, the finale of season two is one of my recent favorite things I have ever seen a TV show do. I love it. I love it. Um, I have heard, because they started getting nominated for Emmys around season, like, three and four, and I have heard, although not there yet, that season four is, like, the be-all and end-all, and that it's, like, an amazing stellar show. So I you just like holy shit's creek. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pulling my I'm putting the full weight of my recommendation uh That's behind awesome. uh shit's yeah. creek. Everybody to should back watch to that. it. Yeah, everybody should watch it. Um and uh <laughs> Sorry. I I just I just left it there, for, right. you. Left like, it I, there for you. It's all right. I wasn't ready. There I was wasn't a, ready. I tossed the ball um, and the ball just went. <laughs> <laughs> donk,
0: donk, donk. <laughs> hits my feet uh in the spirit of that that's been another installment of what you're watching what you reading what you listening do shit scream
1: mm-hmm. but whoa okay so hashtag I love the 70s ladies and gentlemen we are gonna dive one more time into the uh, 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 uh alright uh Barry Gibb bring us home Well. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's enough of that. We are counting down a double dose uh 40 Good Lord. You better 21. you better not
0: do what you usually do, which is spend I like know, a I per. know,
1: I okay. know, I know. All right, so uh, 40 <laughs> to 21. Uh, you want to do even again? Why don't you go ahead and count us sure. off with number 40? Sure. Yeah, 40 to 21.
0: 40 is Now we're not going to
1: breeze through them. I'm not I'm not going to take a minute each one, but don't like I just speed. finished. You didn't even hear I know, it. It was I so fast. I okay, go
0: um, number 40 is directed by Dan Curtis. Uh, it stars Karen Black in three roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it released in 1975 and is called Trilogy of Terror.
1: It is a really great, that's all, that's yeah, really great film. Number 39, directed by David, Cron- David Cronenberg, who's already shown up twice in this list, starring Oliver Reed from 1979. It is The Brood, a very creepy, uh, very unsettling film.
0: Do you know there's a there's a alien race that's so, directly cribbing off of the xenomorph that's an X Men villain called the Brood.
1: Oh, did you know I did know that they killed uh Johnny Storm, I think, didn't they? Or am I thinking of a different thing?
0: Um, you're thinking of the Annihilation Wave. Oh, yeah, Wars. see, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know, yeah, yeah. Though, good, nice, good on you there, buddy. <laughs> uh, l- little Jonathan Hickman callback. Um, number 38, uh, because he wrote that by the way. Oh, I okay, you. I didn't know that. Um, cool. Number 38, uh, directed by Larry Cohen, releasing in 1974. Also the namesake of our very first T-shirt uh, by Jacob Hunt. <laughs> it's alive. It's alive.
1: It's alive. Uh, I have to mention the tagline for this film. There's only one problem with their baby. It's alive. <laughs> Whoa. I know. Okay, so number 37. Sorry, we're going through these. We just want to get to the film. Um, okay, so number 37 is a film with a really ridiculous title, and it is fantastic. It is called "Taste the Blood of Dracula." It's directed by Peter Sazdi. It's a little much, uh, starring Christopher Lee as Dracula. It was the third or fourth in the series of the Christopher Lee Dracula films, and is my runaway favorite of those films. If
0: uh, now are, just, are these? I'm sorry to interrupt. you. are it, these. The quote-unquote Hammer, yes, yes.
1: These are the Hammer Hammer. uh, horror films uh, that, and uh, this is this long stream of films where Christopher Lee played Dracula somewhere like seven or eight times. Um, And of all of those versions, which I have seen, I think all of them, "Taste the Blood of Dracula" stood out to me. It is really fantastic. If the title just sounds too ridiculous for you, I'm going to ask you to put that aside. And if you have the opportunity to see it and you love you some 1970s, uh, you know, bright, colorful dracula stories and have not seen it check out taste the blood of dracula
0: are they like campy or meant to be like gothic they're gothic, straightforward they're absolutely
1: gothic um and taste the blood of dracula actually has some really effective suspense sequences uh it focuses a lot on sort of the hunters of dracula at that at that moment but he looms as a very ominous presence in some really chilling sequences and and it's it's a very impressive film with an admittedly ridiculous title, but it is it is an amazing film. I love it a lot. If you haven't seen it, well, check it out.
0: Let's taste the blood of number 36, and you that is it. directed by John D. Hancock, releasing in 1971, and is called Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which is just really rude. <laughs> it's not... Those are not good friends. No,
1: no. It is a very impressive film. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's it's kind of understated. I think you'd uh, really enjoy it. Number thirty-five.
0: Are you st- are you saying are you s- are you saying that to me? Or are you saying to the listeners? To the I listeners. Think you'd enjoy it. No, to the no? listeners. Yes. You don't think I'd enjoy it?
1: Uh, I don't know. It might be a little slow for you. Um, you'll fall asleep. So. Um, <laughs> So <laughs> number 35 um, is uh, another Giallo, uh, Blake. Here you go. Number 35, directed by Dario Argento from 1975. It is, its official title is Profondo Rosso, also known as Deep Red. If you're a fan of Giallo, if you're a fan of Argento and have not seen it, this is essential. Seek out Deep Red. If you're not a fan of Giallo, there are, there are some more prominent ones. But if you are a fan, seek out Deep Red. The the, the Jello J- 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 Pudding Pops. <laughs> no, no, I don't know which is worse your your insertion of <laughs> or your weird voice affect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still J- recovering J- from last J- week. Jello um, J- Pudding Pops at number
0: thirty four, uh, starring the dad from A Christmas Story, directed mm-hmm. by John. Llewellyn Moxie, it is The Night Stalker.
1: I'm not going to say a ton about this film, but I love love, what is, love it. It
0: was a made-for-TV is, film. Is it not Kolchak,
1: The Night Stalker? Is that two it, different things? No, it, that, but it is this. So, so The Night Stalker was a made-for-TV film. It also spawned a sequel the next year called The Night Strangler, and the character is Kolchak. It then spawned a one-season TV show a weekly TV show called Kolchak: The Night Stalker mm. that inspired a ton of people, including Chris Carter for X Files. I was, I was um, gonna say it, but you did it. I did it. cause it did. you but, did um, it. I love, <laughs> I love The Night Stalker. If you haven't seen it, seek it out. It's wonderful. It's like seventy-five minutes long. It's amazing. It's uh, Darren McGavin's funny. It's really creepy. Night Stalker is a fantastic film. One of the greatest made-for-TV horror films ever made. So yes, seek out The so, Night Stalker. Wait. Yeah,
0: you just you you named a lot of properties with the name Night Stalker. Is this a feature film or this was a made-for-TV film?
1: This is a made-for-TV film.
0: So, as your co-host, how did you miss so poorly last week on made-for-TV
1: stuff, and yet mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> gonna gonna just, just gonna just throw that out just, there, right? Just, just, just gonna little, needle it in. Little poke. Go back to your giallo pudding pops. Um Boy, you stick your spoon into the pudding. Uh-uh. No, we're going to stop. We're going to put a stop to that right now. That's not allowed. Um, okay, so number 33, charging right past all that. Directed by Fred Walton, starring Carol Kane uh, from 1979. A film that is... Utterly brilliant and fantastic for about 20 minutes, and then gets really bizarre after that, and not quite as great, but is really amazing for those first 20 minutes. It's called When a Stranger Calls. I don't have time to go into this right now, but it really is a film that's like, for 20 minutes, it's amazing. And then after that, it's like, what am I watching? I don't quite understand that. But anyway, number 33. When a stranger calls
0: at number 32 directed by Charles B Pierce releasing in 1972, we have the one and only legend of Boggy Creek.
1: This is a fantastic film. It's like a mock documentary. That's not trying to be funny, um, but it's, is really, it's, it's an exercise in what you don't see can be kind of creepy. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really good. Has no right to be as good as it is. It really is. Um, Number 31, uh, we're getting into some really good fun stuff now. So, directed by Brian Forbes from 1975, it is the Stepford Wives remade rather terribly, uh, directed by Frank Oz later. But the 1975 version, directed by Brian Forbes, is wonderful. About a group of women who are, uh, you know, just kind of robotic wives fem-bots. to these, yeah, fembots basically. Um, uh, so, yes, number thirty-one.
0: This is of numbers fifty through twenty-one the only film
1: I've seen. <laughs> wow.
0: Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm pretty sure dude. I watched this in high school, actually. Like, in class. Really? Yeah, I think
1: dude. so. Dude, okay, so, so like, just real quickly before we move on, like, dude, seek out Night Stalker. You'll enjoy Night Stalker. Yeah. Seek out Trilogy of Terror. Like, there, there's some really good stuff in here. So, yeah, sincerely. That's, and that's I really taste good. the blood of Dracula? That is such a great movie. I want to um, watch that movie. Number right 30.
0: Now. Stop talking. Number 30 directed also <laughs> by... Also, Directed by Dario Argento, which would I imagine which I would imagine would mean it's also a giallo pudding pup uh <laughs> coming out in nineteen seventy it is the bird with the crystal plumage
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is um it's a that's a great film that's a really, really great film Keep going. um. Okay, number 29, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, directed by Robert Fist, starring Joseph Cotton and Vincent Price, uh, about a man going on revenge for what these people did to his wife and to his face. Uh, From 1971, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, number 29.
0: Oh, I'm gonna tell a funny Abominable story real quick. Okay. It's great. It's a great story. Okay. I reference often how I work in a sales environment, and... There's a lot of turnover, and so like no one that might ever listen to this would get offended. It was probably not in the room at the time. Okay. But mm, I'll just tell the story, and I'll let you draw your own conclusion. <laughs> Someone was sharing an article and, and hit the word. Well, they skipped the word and then said, will, W-I-L-L. So they skipped a word. Well, context clues, I said, indomitable? And they were like, yeah, how'd you know that? I was like, well i'm not making this story up um yeah. further down the table someone says like the snowman and i was like oh no, no. No, no oh no that's abominable so then speaker one who missed it the first time is like whatever anyway so the abdominal will i was like oh, no 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 <laughs> oh, like, that, yeah this ain't right this ain't right Girl, oh, that ain't right.
1: right that ain't right <laughs> that ain't right
0: <laughs> Coming in at number twenty-eight, directed by Daniel Holler, starring Dean Stockwell of Quantum Leap fame and Talia Shire, whose name I do recognize, but I don't know what I've seen her in. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's Rocky fame. Yep. Um. Uh. Released in nineteen seventy, it is the Dunwich. Dunwich.
1: I've always said Dunwich, but it could be Dunwich or something. Sandwich. I've always said Dunwich, but.
0: Who Dunwich? (laughs) Uh, Horror. The 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 Dunwich horror. (laughs) Horror.
1: <laughs> they
0: okay, done they right done
1: on. they done which horror? Which they horror done, are they done? They do, which horror have they done? That's that's so offensive to that film. It's a great film. So, I All ain't right. right. Number 27 our next giallo pudding pop I hate that you've done that to me. Um, is It's di- right there. I, I didn't have to work <laughs> it's hard for it. directed by Mario Bava from 1971. It is a it's Bay. Baba, Baba. Yes, A Bay of Blood. Um, it's a, there's a lot of great Bava films. I was surprised to see this one so high up because I'm not a very big fan of it. But A Bay of Blood directed by Mario Bava from 1971 came in at number 27.
0: Did you know? That the Mario Brothers, that their last name is Mario, and thus
1: mm. Mario, they the Mario, they are the Mario Brothers. Yeah, well, uh, I did right. not, I did not know that. But
0: what that, but what that means though
1: is that he's Mario, Mario, Mario's. Yes, he's Mario, uh-huh. Mario, and Luigi, Mario.
0: In fact, it's true. Wow! Shout out Matt Murray for that little bit of oh my idiotic gosh. factoidness. <laughs> wow! About. Five seven years ago, uh, coming in at number twenty-six, directed by William Crane, releasing in nineteen seventy-two. It is Blackula.
1: That is exactly what it is. A film that is exactly what you think it is. It is <laughs> with a title like Blackula. Tell me, it is exactly it is it is Black Dracula. It is exactly what you think it would be. It is an, an adaptation of Dracula. Title, set, title. Yeah.
0: Is, it's kind of like Eyes Without a Face. Like I don't yes. get
1: it. So number twenty-five is a film I absolutely love. If you haven't seen it, you should seek it out. It's directed by John Howe, starring Roddy McDowell from 1973. It is called The Legend of Hell House. It is written by Richard Matheson. It is gothic. It is creepy. It is atmospheric. It is wonderful. So from number 25, The Legend of Hell House, starring Roddy McDowell and directed by John Howe.
0: I'm so dumb. It'll come out in a minute. Number 24 is The Amityville Horror, directed Mm. by Stuart Rosenberg, starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. She of Superman fame, which will incredibly ironically come up a little later for me. (laughs) But um, the reason I'm dumb is I never put together what I imagine is the case that James is Josh's father.
1: Yeah. Oh Um, yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. That that
0: just never ever clicked with me. Really?
1: Oh okay. Yeah he yeah that's that is James is James is uh, Josh's father. Uh, Most recent thing I saw James Brolin in was a show that I loved called Life in Pieces. Um, that I think I referenced on the show before. he was the he was the patriarch of that uh, family, and it was he was really, really, very funny in it. so number twenty three, a film. Uh, if you recognize this director's name, Charles B. Pierce, he also directed The Legend of Boggy Creek. This is another faux documentary that is not trying to be funny and is very creepy and effective. It is called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Really haunting and effective. Has some very unsettling death scenes in it uh, from 1976. Uh, kind of a precursor to the slasher. It wouldn't technically be called a slasher, uh, considered a slasher, but uh, kind of a uh, an early version of that kind of thing. The Town That Dreaded Sundown, again, directed by Charles B. Pierce, is number 23.
0: Coming in at number 22, and we are oh so close, coming in at, or releasing rather, in 1973, directed by the father of the zombie, uh, George A. Romero, it is The Crazies.
1: Mm-hmm um i have never seen this original but i have seen the remake starring timothy oliphant and it's wonderful um oh, really? so, but yeah so yeah, that was I should,
0: that was only like what 10 12 years ago Something i think
1: like so that. yeah about yeah nine or ten years ago um so i, I want to seek out this original by george romero because i do i do love his filmmaking coming in at number 21 Uh, let's uh, all go down to the lab and uh, see what's on the slab. It is the Rocky Horror Picture Show directed by Jim Sharman, starring Tim Curry, Susan Sarandon, and a whole host of other people. Um, A a wild cult favorite with a lot of people hosting sing-alongs, and I have seen it. Confession time, I am not a very big fan. I do understand why it is so infectious for audiences because it is, it is easy to sort of get caught up in the spectacle of it. Um, but yes, number 21 for our uh, favorite horror films of the 70s, listener voted, The Rocky Horror Picture Show from 1975. So Nathan, that puts Read. that countdown in the books, but we're not talking about any of those films. We're not. We are talking about a film that did, to my sadness... Did not make your top 10. Just barely really? skirted out. Just barely skirted out. Yes. Um, it was in the top 10 for a little bit and then got beat out by some other things. We'll stay tuned for all of that, listeners. But um, I will go ahead and spoil that this landed at number 11 so that everybody just kind of knows where we're going with this. So just outside of the top 10, but we are talking about the Philip Kaufman-directed remake of the 1956 film Invasion of of the Body Snatchers from 1978. Nathan, you said you'd seen this before. Did I?
0: I haven't said this in this conversation.
1: No, but you told me. Listeners know we Mm. talk outside the show, right? Like, do they know Mm. that? Mm. Maybe they they don't. Who is this? I don't know. What's your name? Um, Was I you? There it is. You me? There it is.
0: Um, uh, Yes, I had seen this at least once before, possibly twice. Okay. Um, I love it.
1: It's this is fantastic movie. this is a fantastic so, this
0: is a great movie
1: of the films uh, that we 're covering in this series i'm pretty excited about one that's coming up, but this might be my personal favorite of the four that we're covering it's I have a, to a lovely film
0: i love this, it this for to to speak some uh, positivity its way i I must confess like i'm having in a uh, a level of which i'm slightly ashamed to admit uh heightened degree of having to watch movies in more than one sitting
1: mm, Okay, these
0: days and mm-hmm. just in life these days. Um, I, I'm really not proud of that. It's just whether, you know, kind of fatigue or busyness, um, it's very difficult to get all the way through a thing. But even that notwithstanding, the watching of this, even broken mm. up that way, was still highly compelling and just yeah feels yeah. like feels like kind of expert film craft. Oh, it's, it's
1: really great. Gosh, it's such a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, I have, as I did with uh, Phantasm, I have a mountainous host of uh, Trivial Bits. I will move through them as quickly as possible. But um, Philip Kaufman is the director here. He's known as a director for this. Uh, he's, uh, the Right Stuff was a pretty popular film. He also uh, made a film that I think you've seen uh, called Quill's. Um oh, that yeah, yeah, that's a jacked up movie. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. Um so Philip Kaufman is a that's the
0: that's the uh Jeffrey Rush Kate one Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, is Joaquin in that? He is, yeah. Joaquin yeah. Phoenix is in it too. It's a, like a master course in acting, but uh yes. it's very challenging to watch at the same time. Um so but as a writer, his biggest claim to fame is co creating with his pal George Lucas both the character and story of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. Yeah. So um, that is uh, Philip Kaufman's biggest claim to fame <laughs> is that he helped create the character of uh, Indiana Jones. Yep. Um, so I don't know if you know this. You've seen this film a couple of times. I'm just gonna ask this question. If you know it, you get points, but you don't get any dings if you don't because it's a blink and you'll miss a shot. Do you? Did you catch... The priest sitting on the swing and who that is.
0: I did catch the priest sitting on the swing. I don't know that I would have, you know, known who it was.
1: Okay, because it uh, it's a pretty major actor to be just be sitting on a swing with no lines. That is Robert Duvall. Wow. He was yes, he was just he had worked with Kaufman previously. He happened to be in San Francisco on the day of shooting. Just, you know, got in touch with his old pal for, I think, a completely innocuous reason, and then shot his wordless cameo for free just because that was what his buddy happened to be doing that day. I love Robert Duvall. It's it's so amazing. So, yes, that is. If he were nearby, I'd be like, you're a good man. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. It's going to be a cameo in every single episode. Um, so yes, the priest sitting on the swings in the very early scene is none other than the one and only legendary Robert Duvall. Uh, another important cameo: the scene where um, uh, you know it's Rana- funny about you saying that though is sure. in the moment.
0: I remember thinking that's an it's an odd inclusion,
1: oh. but it's just it's just.
0: It, it's just not a close enough shot to really sure ping, sure. ping who it is.
1: No, yep, I understand. So uh, another important cameo in the film: the uh, old man who runs through the streets, scream, "You're all next! They're coming! They're coming!" Uh, as Matthew and Elizabeth are driving, uh, th- that old man is the actor Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy was the lead actor of the 1956 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, The best part about his cameo is that, spoiler alert for that film, uh, the 1956 version of the film ends with Kevin McCarthy's character... Desperately running through oncoming traffic. Awesome. Trying to scream, saying "You're all next." If they're coming. You're all next. So that's this came- pretty awesome, uh, isn't it? This cameo is multi-layered, and I love it for it. It is. Uh, it's really fantastic. So the uh, just as a brief mention, the hypnotic, very unsettling, and pretty powerful at times score is the only film score ever composed by composer Denny uh, Zeitlin or Zeitlin, uh, however you say his name um and uh it's pretty it's pretty effective in several places often using uh sound effects that are not musical in nature to gr- tremendous effect the nude scene Yes, the nude scene in the PG film, which I think it's now reclassified as PG thirteen. There's no way that's PG. Yeah. Uh, let me. I'm going to look this up in real time right now because I'm pretty positive this is a PG film. In it might have been reclassified as R since you know. Nope. I am looking at IMDb right now. This is a PG film with an extended nude scene. Um. So yes, that's uh, insane, isn't it? So, but her nude scene, uh, towards the end of the film was also shot. Uh, you know, almost shot for shot where she was fully clothed so that it would not have to be edited out for television audiences. Um, so, but it's just, it, that was fascinating to me that they shot it those two different ways. Um, but yeah, this is a PG, this is a PG film. It was the 70s. I mean, PG-13 didn't exist and I'm surprised it wasn't R, but, uh, but there it is. I do love this story. This is a, a report from the set. Uh, Brooke Adams, who played Elizabeth, Uh, challenged Donald Sutherland to a foot race during one of the chase sequences. When Kaufman yelled cut, they just kept running. Brooke Adams won the race despite wearing a dress and high heels, (laughs) which I think is just wonderful to, uh, to notate. I have a few more here. Uh, the film is pretty universally regarded, not only as superior to the original version, even though the original version is great, but as one of the greatest remakes in cinema history. Huh. Uh, most of the time, remakes are considered at least somewhat inferior or dramatically different from their uh, counterparts. This stays pretty true to the concept, uh, but manages to be, uh, in many ways, I think, superior in most of uh Cinematic have you Critics seen all the iterations? I have. Um, and they're all pretty good, with the exception of the, I forget what year, but in the 2000s, the one that's just called The Invasion, starring um, Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. I knew um, that. I was like, yeah. I'm pretty
0: sure there was an adaptation featuring
1: Daniel Craig. Exactly. Yeah. And it's passable, but it's not that great. The version from the 90s is uh, really strong, uh, but, the, but the runaway best version is this version from the 70s. The 50s one is really good as well. Couple of other cameos. The director can briefly be seen as the man tapping on the phone booth when Donald Sutherland is, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get some traction on there. Also, uh, the director of the nineteen fifty six original cameos as the taxi driver, the one who's like, I have two in my back seat, type yeah. H. Yeah. Incidentally, I think this is hysterical. He had poor eyesight and he was driving without his glasses. So the anxiety that Brooke Adams and Donald Sutherland display is largely real. <laughs> <laughs> because he was driving with uh, wow. no, known poor vision and without his glasses. um. So, huge spoiler alert for this film. If you have not seen this film, skipping to recommendations, you've got to see this movie. This movie is fantastic. It's amazing. We're going to highly recommend it. Before we get into all the specifics, a trivial bit I have to mention here. The original shooting script had a happy ending where mm. Matthew and Nancy look at each other from across the street and give each other reassuring glances and nods before they move on to their various places. When they went to shoot the scene, only Donald Sutherland, the screenwriter, and Philip Kaufman knew what was about to happen. Nobody else on cast or crew knew what was about to happen. So when Sutherland's face changes and he full-on shouts and screams at, at the actress there, Veronica Cartwright... The, the brief flash of pure unexpected terror you see on her face is authentic. She was not expecting that to happen. Um, well, the, and they never filmed the script's original happy ending because they did not want the studio to recut their film. The reason they were so intentional about that is because the 1956 film had a darker ending that the studio recut to have a slightly more upbeat, hopeful, possible oh, ending. Well. Um they did not want that to happen to this film, so they you know, the script had a happy ending. They went right up to the moment of roll camera, they shot that ending, that glorious ending, um, and then did not shoot any different version, so the studio had no choice. Um so yeah, I just I I love hearing about that. I've talked enough, that's all my trivial. Speaking bits. of
0: um Colchak the Night Stalker and mm. inspiring Chris Carter to make the X Files, my first experience of Veronica Cartwright was as a recurring role on the X Files,
1: really? Just, she's also just, she's also in the Birds, FYI. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, right, but I, but sure,
0: yeah. Possibly had seen the Birds, but in terms of my kind of recognition of her as an actor, was as uh, the X Files cast. She member. was Jeffrey Jeffrey Spender's mother. I
1: believe. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah. Yeah. All
0: right, all right. And, um, when, and at one point, at one point, when she first meets Fox Mulder, she's so enamored of him, she says, "Oh, I just peed the floor." <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> this is it's roughly season five. Shout out Ned. Um, <laughs> um, I have talked a long yeah, time for trivial, you be- have.
1: trivial bits. If you have any, like, wow. I, like
0: I sometimes do in movies, I think I fell asleep.
1: Oh my god! Um, <laughs> <just kidding. laughs> um, so uh, I'm going to yield the floor to you for several likes, dislikes you have. I'll yes, and you if any, if you bring up any that uh, that I also love.
0: I don't know if you ever have this feeling where you're like. I don't know how to articulate why this is the case. Okay. But this movie, the longer I watched it, the more I'm like, "I love this." Oh yeah. This is so good. Yes. I don't totally. I don't know exactly what I'm responding to,
1: but this is so good. Mm Hmm. Um. It's one of the rare times you texted me in your watching of it at how much you were enjoying and loved this movie.
0: Well, it just holds up super well. It really does. Uh, well, okay, we'll start it this way. It's 40 um,
1: years old, and it's powerful. It's amazing. Sorry. I actually
0: I actually, um, kind of had this notion watching it. I'm like, why have I not, to my recollection, which admittedly can be fuzzy, knowing he is in more, I don't know why I haven't personally watched more Donald Sutherland stuff. Oh, He's fantastic my gosh. in this.
1: Oh, my He's gosh, so good. Dude.
0: I love the... One, he just isn't Traditional Hollywood heartthrob in this role, you right? Know, like you, right. You, you just mentioned Daniel Craig is in the invasion. It's like right. Daniel Craig right, is right. one handsome dude. Sure. Like,
1: of course. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, let's let's if we made our top ten right now, Reed, he'd be <laughs> an adult, right. Come on. Um, Sutherland is more just like average. I mean, he's got a unique. He's got a distinct
1: look. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But
0: definitely not. You know, kind of traditional heartthrob or whatever. I'm right. To say that. Right. Yeah.
1: No, I'm. I'm with. But you. I also
0: just love the treatment of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's sort of this maybe kind of suggestion. Maybe you can clarify if it is explicit, but I, I don't remember it being so. Maybe suggestion that their exes, or at least just really fond coworkers, yeah. um, have yep. have a lot of history together. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, by the end of it, you know, are are conveying affection towards each other and, and, right, and in fact right. love for each other. But just the way I don't know, there's something about the way the film presents their relationship that I really responded positively to that. It's not a traditional version of, oh, we're in a perilous situation. So naturally, we're going to fall in love. It doesn't right. have that feeling to it.
1: Well, no, because the because the affection is expressed, uh, you know, so so much before any of the other stuff starts to really go down uh when you know she comes over to his house and cooks her dinner and everything like that now at first it's funny because at first i lost traction i was like this is is a little inappropriate but i didn't but i caught later uh that she wasn't married to jeffrey she was living with jeffrey but jeffrey is just her boyfriend so it made it a little bit more uh, like there's still kind of a a tension going on with them that you know uh, he's completely single uh she's in a, a version of a committed relationship but no i i do love the scene where they're sitting there eating dinner out on the you know his backyard his backyard area um it's yeah it it is treated very sensitively and i really do enjoy uh their connections quite a bit but generally
0: just that casting on both of their parts is mm-hmm. so phenomenal oh,
1: yeah just before we leave donald sutherland so at the time that this was made, he was the biggest star in this film. He had a run of uh, big hits in the 70s, um, which is really interesting considering like Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy are in the cast. I mean, uh, yeah, we'll get to them in just a little bit. But um, Sutherland himself, like, yes, you you briefly mentioned you should seek out Donald Sutherland. He's one of my favorite actors. He's one of my very favorite actors. I have seen as much of his uh, catalog as I could see um and it is i haven 't seen everything because he 's been in like you know nearly two hundred things but i i I really appreciate him a tremendous amount um he had such a depth of believability to it, even in films that are subpar he 's usually quite great in them um I love donald Sutherland and there's a a wealth of stuff from this era in the seventies that I mm-hmm. think you would find uh really compelling, even if just well, his performance, a- if nothing else it's also
0: funny because I watched this and if you listen to Last week's episode, my watcher being Ad Astra, he's in that. Oh, I didn't know oh. it. I didn't know it before I went to see it. Okay. I did yeah. I was going to see it. Um, But it was kind of, I, I enjoyed the fact that I had just watched Body Snatchers. Yeah. Yeah. I happened to go see Ad Astra and I was like, there you are. <laughs> um, Still working. But I love it. Yeah, I did love, I wrote this down. I was like, um, wait a minute. A Sutherland attempting to save the world on no sleep? Is this Kiefer or Donald? (laughs) That's funny.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 24. Um, Um, I do love the introduction of his character. I think just the the first time we see his character remind me. So it begins oh, the first time the we, we see yeah. yeah and the first time we see him it's through that fish-eye glare through the peephole in yes. the door. Yes. But then I love that like as he's walking in we see the reaction he causes in the restaurant owner who's like "Hello, it's, it's So glad to see you." And then the face just dissolves. I just I I love it. It's such a perfect introduction to a character. I love it so well, much. Well, I
0: love this notion of like, you know, I'm pretty unfamiliar with Kind of just civic bureaucracy, but the movie at least puts a lot of weight behind his role as just an administrator with the health department, health inspector,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, you
0: know, it's just like not a traditional movie authority figure, right? Yeah, right. Health department inspector, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right, right, of course. And but but in the movie, it's like get the mayor on the phone, like wow, (laughs) this guy's got some swing, got some power.
1: Yeah, I do love it. Um,
0: I love the notion, and I don't know, I'm I'm bouncing around here, but I, I don't, that experience you can have watching a movie sometimes where you're like, is this super obvious? Is it just obvious to me because I know the film? Would someone initially watching this not pick this out early on? But the consistent imagery of the garbage trucks with the dusty dust,
1: mm. the dust bunnies? Oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah.
0: What? What's interesting? I
1: didn't. I didn't pick up on it. I've seen this film multiple times, and I didn't. I mean, like, it didn't ping for me. Like, I. I remember now that you're saying it. I remember those visual images, but I didn't. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's it's everywhere,
0: and it starts real early. Mm. Um, in fact, I might be wrong here, but I think the first image of it is once Elizabeth is suspecting Jeffrey of whatever. You know, she doesn't know, but he's taking garbage out. Yeah. Like you, you think it's just a oh, random household chore, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty everywhere. That's, a, um, that's awesome. Um, what you want to talk about? Riri?
1: So I've got, I have a couple more notes here. So uh, yeah, he's, he says, uh, Matthew, Donald Sutherland's character says uh, the Warriors won. Your house must be happy. Uh, so Jeffrey and Elizabeth are golden state warriors fans and uh, that would have been what I was going to notate is that would have been my first clue. If my wife ever gave away tickets to see the Warriors, that'd be my first sign. She was a pod person. I, it, it would it would have been for me too. That i had been like, Nope, Nope. This ain't th- that, that ain't right. That ain't right. Um, That's funny. So. Sports is fun. <laughs> so, uh, I
0: love, I love the ominous moment. Um, it's really fun to me when we both really like a movie. Um, uh, of the teacher with the school children. And she's like, there's some more flower kids.
1: Go pick them. I'm like, oh,
0: God. All right. Don't know, oh, no, children.
1: I know. I know. It's so nerve wracking. It's awful. Um, and then the, um, uh, well, it's funny, too, because Elizabeth could kind of be blamed for starting all the stuff that happens in her household. It's you are for, such a man. It's Well, no, listen, come on. I'm just no, kidding. I mean, it's, I'm just saying, because she brought the flower home and everything like that. But um, uh, one thing that I mentioned, of course, we've breezed past them so far, but Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy are both in this film. They arrive in the same scene uh, as rivals. I ask myself, a question for you. I ask mm-hmm. myself every time I see this film if I think Leonard Nimoy has turned from the very first time we see him, or if he's turned somewhere early on uh, after that first encounter that we see him. What do you you think?
0: I I think it's a fun thought experiment. I just, it's hard to tell because the post-pod iteration of people is so devoid of, so relatively devoid of inflection and and sort of, you know, emotionality is kind of the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And
1: exuberance.
0: Yeah. And, and he doesn't seem to exhibit that. And and it would feel like a little bit of a stretch to think he's just intentionally uh, masking himself. Right. Because right.
1: the plan just doesn't
0: seem to have that to it. I mean, I, I, uh, someone could say, no, I think that's absolutely what's the case. And I don't know that I'd be able to be like, that's ridiculous because mm-hmm. the the film could kind of support
1: both both sides of that. Sure, no, I totally I totally understand. As I had, I think I had mentioned briefly, or maybe I just sort of thought it in my head and didn't say it out loud yet. But Leonard Nimoy was not a very big star at this time. Um, like, so you've got Jeff Goldblum, Leonard Nimoy, Brooke Adams, um, all went on to you know popular careers. But Donald Sutherland is the is the major heavy hitter in this from. From reports from the set, each of them only made like twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars, which you know I don't have twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. Um. Uh, they they each made that. Donald Sutherland. Made, <laughs> right. Uh. Donald Sutherland made somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three hundred thousand dollars compared to their other salaries, sure. just because of how big of a star he was. So Leonard Nimoy, it's interesting to see him in this because obviously this was after the Star Trek TV show, but it was before. Any of the feature films had been made, so it was before that brought Star Trek back into the cultural ethos um It was only the t v show you know that had caused that for it.
0: I will say you know I was, I was saying five minutes ago or whatever it's hard to articulate exactly what makes me love it, but I do think it's an accumulation of of aspects to it that just to me signal a real confidence in the film craft
1: mm, um that's a good way to put that. As
0: Noted in several spots that, while yes, are quote unquote obvious, on a certain level are also just kind of this cool contribution to an overall compounding effect of the paranoia aspect. Yeah. So, I love, I love the scene, the long scene in the car. Mm. She's, I don't remember exactly what the story is, but she's telling some sort of paranoid story, right? Yeah. Do you remember this? He's telling jokes.
1: Mm-hmm. He jokes to her about that. It's the joke he never gets to finish, which I've always loved that that moment. This
0: foreboding is growing, but what I love about that scene is the bulk of it is from between them. The shot is from between them out through this broken, splintered windshield, which is, to me, this representation of the fractured world they now occupy. Oh
1: my gosh, it's wonderful. Um, yeah.
0: Oh, it's amazing. And just this dawning revelation on these characters' parts of, like, what is going on, <laughs> you know? And because, that's, because that scene culminates, basically, with them uh, creeping by the wreck, you know, and just yes. the, the odd behavior of the onlookers to that wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, this could get into theme. It actually isn't a theme. It's just coming to me in the moment. But I love, or I find interesting... Matthew's insistence, continued insistence on the trustworthiness of traditional authoritative institutions.
1: Right. He's like, right. he Keep
0: saying, "I gotta call the police." I gotta call the police. Yep. I gotta call the police. Yep. Which, which isn't Nathan saying, "Boo, police!" That's not me saying. No. That. It's no simply no, like, course. it's interesting that this movie that is about institutional breakdown, mm-hmm. the, the the hero who himself by the end is compromised. Keeps attempting to turn to traditional authority structures. Um, yep. But uh, so there's that. I love the distorted mirror image when he's on the phone at the party, calling the police. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh right. yeah. Um. And and uh, Goldblum is standing beside him, but mm-hmm. the primary, you know, kind of focus of the shot is this uh, distorted image in the mirror.
1: Oh, it's so I great. love
0: this is a single shot but I love it the the shot of Sutherland in the closet when he's trying to save Elizabeth oh my god he's gosh, shrouded yes. in shadow but the light is up on his face it's like a blink and you miss it kind of yeah, moment but sure. it's just really well really well composed and executed shot I don't know why I just love the line cuz it says a lot about the what's interesting about Goldblum's character/performance slash performance in this is Though typically manic, we are at least used to, I mean, our generation cut our teeth on Jurassic Park Goldblum. Yes, yes. Um, For this, many of us,
1: that was the primary association we had with him as an actor.
0: And even The Fly, he turns into this, but like this swaggering, confident, cock-of-the-walk kind of performance. Yeah. That what's interesting in Belichick, the character he plays here, he is, he's utterly insecure and right. utterly a uh, kind of low totem pole, low on the totem pole type of person. Mm-hmm. He, he, he aspires to kind of, you know, fame is the wrong word, but, you know, just like notoriety
1: yeah, published to make an impact. Thing. Sure.
0: But where I was going is the the moment when what is possible at this point, a, a, a pod a pod Spock, he says to Goldblum, face it, Belichick, you've got some friends who love to play practical jokes.
1: Mm. And Goldblum
0: just has this real Yeah, yeah. Pitiful response and just says, I don't have any friends. And like it's just kind of left there.
1: Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. It's anyway, I mean there's yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. Um speaking of him, I feudal Goldblum. yeah, Goldblum, feudal as it all seems, I do love his sacrifice scene. Like, where he just goes charging out and starts, like, calling the pod people after him. In, in and in a, what we learn is an, a, eventually a vain attempt to let Matthew and Elizabeth escape. Um, but, uh, I, I do love that. I do love that scene. Um, it's interesting to me. They have these, like, he and, and Nancy. I don't know if they're just, I, I think they're in a relationship. I don't think any of these people are married to each other. Um, no, but, um,
0: I'm pretty sure they refer to each other. One of them either refers to husband or the other refers to wife. Like, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I'd yeah.
1: forgotten that. Um, but uh, they own this like uh like mud bath place. Like you can go and, and just, you know, get treatments for skincare, like supposed to release toxins and all this other sort of stuff. Um, but in the process of her giving this patron of their establishment a massage, she casually comments about the music being played for the plants she casually comments that the plants have feelings just like people, mm-hmm. which is ironic considering that the pod plant replicas we later encounter are specifically like lack emotion. And, and I just, I, mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty, uh, just a, just an interesting sort of note. I don't have an expounded theme.
0: Well, you you brought it up. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything from anything mm-hmm. about late 1970s, san francisco mud bath houses
1: but that ain't <laughs> right oh, that ain't right oh my gosh! i man. am the poor man's trying to no, slip slide out just of
0: it. no <laughs> it that ain't right no ain't. did you see how unsanitary that place looks yeah, of course that is not okay yeah i agree you know, all this tile and kind of dingy mm-hmm. and it's like it's like the shower curtains on it are like the showers at youth camp when you went to youth camp, or church youth camp. <laughs> it's like the, the, now maybe this is a large person problem, but the showers are always too small and the shower curtains are always too clingy. Like you can't turn around. This nasty, <laughs> nasty plastic curtain keeps sticking to your legs. That's what those shower curtains yeah, are remind me of yeah. in this mud house. That's, Give me a break. Get awful. out of here. That ain't right. Yeah,
1: that ain't right. Um, so I only have uh, I only have two more. Uh, one of them I'm not going to unpack entirely, except just heaping my rabid affection on the construction of the scene. Uh, the scene where the large group of Pod people, led by a now Pod Kribner and a Pod Belichick, uh, when they finally catch up with Matthew and Elizabeth, um, it's that that scene is devastating and powerful and amazing and haunting, and it's it, there's a ton going on in that brief little five to six minute exchange uh, that I think is really, really effective. Um, The last thing that I had was um, that I don't know whether to put the sequence where amazing grace is being played over top of everything in a love because I love the scene or in a fear because that is haunting as crap. To when when is that? Amazing Grace plays over top of when he leaves Elizabeth for a moment to go and explore oh, oh, the intake yeah. of the factory.
0: Yeah, that, that's is that when he goes to explore the boat?
1: Uh I think so, yes. And then he comes back and finds Elizabeth. Well that's chips, right? Chips. What are you talking about? Chips, that's not the word I'm looking for. It's not I don't think it's Amazing Grace. It is absolutely one hundred percent amazing grace. Okay. Go ahead. Um, where did you watch this film? Hmm? Where? What streaming network did you watch this film? Amazon Prime. I own it through Voodoo, he, he and I'm wondering it. if, because I don't remember your Chips thing, you're saying you didn't hear Amazing Grace, so I'm wondering if there is a different Well, Chips iteration. may be the wrong
0: word I'm looking for. There's an old tune, right? Like a a dirge, right? Like he mm-hmm. hears this tune. I I don't think... In my watching of it, it was Amazing Grace. It didn't ping for me as that because he names whatever it is he's hearing to her. That's why he gets excited and runs out. Hmm. But Chips, that's the wrong word. Chips, taps. Taps. That's oh, what I'm looking for.
1: Oh, taps. I th- it, st- yes. it starts as taps. It does start as taps, but then becomes Amazing Grace. Um. Hmm. Let me see here. Um. Maybe. <laughs>
0: maybe maybe you I, I mean you know like if, if that's what if that's what you heard maybe that's what th- was. now i hear that yeah, yeah. for sure but what is tax i don't know um, i just know it's typically some sort of yeah yeah that's that's, definitely an yeah. yeah so, but I wasn't calling you wrong. I just misremembered all right <laughs> so but no, the, I love <laughs> that you just pulled that up. I was <laughs> like, I'm amazed I found like, it that quick Nathan is gonna try to call me out on this. well, I got it ready. So taps,
1: I think is burn 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 burn, burn, burn. Right, but it's like a dirge. Like yeah, a, yeah, it's, it's a very like a and it's uh, usually funereal. Yeah, and usually played, I think, on trumpets. Um, but but at any rate, so but he
0: does call it out. That I'm not making that part up. He calls it out, so it must start there and kind of morph
1: into that. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but that whole sequence, like where, but that's the thing. So what I just played you, Amazing Grace, like playing in this haunting way over top of like this desolate landscape as he's you know mm-hmm. rapidly sort of trying to find some outlet for assistance and then of course comes back here's what's here's what's crazy about it now this I am not so confident about I am pretty I am pretty convinced though that the final tones being played as he's walking up before he encounters Nancy in the very final scene I am Think I hear the refrain of "Amazing Grace" again? I could be wrong about that we'll, one. We'll pull it up. <laughs> no, because it's so- you got it all at the ready. It's too subtle. Um, but uh, honestly, the only reason I brought all that up is because I like that that moment. I love it's very compelling, but it is also like really freaky to me because obviously well, "Amazing Grace." is... Yeah, nothing. I mean,
0: like yeah. that. That's why I was, or this is at least in part why I'm so surprised this movie has PG, is PG, not just the extended nudity, but... Sure, yeah. This is a dark movie. It really is. Like, it is dark, and not Germany 1986 dark, but um <laughs> that scene, the Amazing Tap scene, is this last gasp. yeah of pos of possibility Mm -hmm. that gets then gets immediately squandered when he returns and she's
1: gone. Oh my gosh. It's awful. Yeah. It's so awful. Um, I did
0: write that. I did write down my Oprah note when you first see the factory, it just says, you get a pod, you get
1: a (laughs) pod. Everyone gets a pod. (laughs) Everybody gets a pod. That's funny. So I'm in, I mean, I'm ready to move. Yeah. We're, we're essentially here. um, I wrote down one existential one. I just, I love this combination. Uh, they're talking, it, they're at Kribner's book signing, and he says, uh, Matthew says, what's a conspiracy? Because Jack said, it's all a conspiracy. And Matthew says, what's a conspiracy? And Jack says, everything. And I just, I was just like, ooh. Yeah, I just got I just got shivers when I heard that. Um. So the first one that I have on mine, I only have a few here, even though this is a pretty unnerving movie. Uh the first one I have on mine is when Nancy pulls the sheet back to reveal Pod Jack for the first time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then when he opens At first the I
0: eyes. said at first I said poor Goldblum and then I said spore gold
1: <laughs> <laughs> No. Oh no. <laughs> oh my god. Spore Yeah, Goldblum. that was nasty. God. I do love
0: I do love the kind of progressive realization of what's happening. Like there's suspicion there's, then there's paranoia. Then there's like confirmation. Then there's visualization. You mm, know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. The, the nature of things being not right gets confirmed at what, you know, the quarter, you know, maybe one third mark. Sure, or something. Right. But once the experience Jack and Nancy have with spore bloom is just this really wicked turn in the narrative. Oh,
1: my gosh. It's such an ominous and unsettling scene when he's with, with, if I'm remembering correctly, no musical affectation, he's touching it and the the little white hairs are, like, reaching out Mm -hmm. for him. Oh, my gosh, that's freaky. That whole thing is freaky. Well, come on. I mean,
0: then what? Like, 10 minutes later, you got everybody at the house and you got old... Mm -mm. Oh, Jack Bauer Senior dozes off, and the nope. the pod babies show up.
1: That that ain't that ain't right. That ain't right. Oh my gosh, that's nasty. <laughs> that scene goes on forever. This ain't PG. No, it does. It goes it does. on forever. That whole it's
0: like it's like five minutes.
1: Yes, easily. And I had ugh. totally
0: forgotten that.
1: Oh my scene. gosh, it's so super creepy. And then you think, oh, they're just gonna sort of tease that visualization and then you're gonna look back and it's gonna be this nope. fully formed thing. No, you get to see it all. You get to see all yep. the different things. And then when Nancy comes in and is trying to wake him and is and, and then she looks down and you see these like twitching like yeah. things. Oh my like, yeah. God. It's yeah. awful. Awful. Um, you know what else ain't right? I mean, come on, what? That man faced dog, that ain't right. <clears throat> <laughs> that ain't right, <laughs> <laughs> what? in
0: the world i felt like <laughs> yeah, i felt right. like mike with them binoculars being like wtf and if, what is with this dog that
1: thing that is so
0: that feels like a joke that it feels does
1: like, doesn't it
0: let's just let's just f with the viewer it do, like,
1: it feels so hey, random it, <laughs> that's exactly what he's saying he's like looking over it. and and here's the other thing <laughs> i wouldn't be able to imitate the musical Affectation, but it's like a, it's like some weird calliope. Cause it's amazing, Grace. No, it's not. So, but it's like this weird, <laughs> like he, like when that dog face or that person face dog thing like runs out, the music takes this distinct, like it does a little like, like it does this yeah. weird trill thing that I'm like, what, what is this? And it's so unsafe. Is it a, is it a man
0: faced dog or a dog bodied man?
1: I don't know. I don't know. But either way, that ain't right. Like,
0: what happened? I,
1: what happened? <laughs> did. I don't want to know what I happened. I mean, <laughs> did it,
0: a man does off with his dog and the pod
1: births. Oh, my God. A,
0: a hybrid, a, a Grex of the man dog? Oh, my God.
1: Maybe. That ain't right. That ain't right. That, thing, that You know what else ain't, ain't, ain't right.
0: right? Is Is them shrieks. Oh my lord. That is not right. It doesn't get introduced like, until like, like the like,
1: last half hour of the film, but no, oh man. But it's effective. It is. It reminded so me creepy.
0: of all uh, the, you know, GI Joe movie and they're like Cobra la 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 la. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um but man, Elizabeth
0: uh, Elizabeth melting in his arms. That ain't right.
1: I just that entire sequence, it's freaky, it's devastating emotionally. Um it it's awful because she's been our heroine for so long like we see her before we see any other major character and uh so when he can't wake her up and Sutherland is already just emotionally devastated and then he's holding her lifeless body as it begins to disintegrate into his arms it's terrible it's terrible and then on top of that after all that's done then a version of her like naked mm-hmm. pops up in the brush just ahead and is clearly like full on pod like she she is turned there is no going back it is its you talk about dark man this is a dark dark film it's
0: well and then when pod her shrieks at him
1: oh my I gosh yes ain't right Whew. <sighs>
0: So I guess that you know the last scare of the whole movie is that final moment. Like
1: that's one of the most effective endings I have so ever good. seen for any film. It is a is it it is as downer as it is. It is a perfect. Oh, it is a perfect ending. It's it's absolutely perfect. Devastating and I don't know if this was an intentional decision or if it was just how things worked out. No music over the closing credits. Oh, that's, I caught that. Yeah, I caught just. That. You're left with that, with his shriek and her screams, and that's it. And they don't they don't continue. It's just that's the last sort of sound you hear before everything goes silent and the credits sort of well, slowly roll up.
0: I mean, this is just coming to me in the moment. One thing that might be intentional about that, but also is just really awesome to think about is, theoretically, they're kind of positioning it's all over for humanity Yeah, and the notion that the film ends with no music. There's nothing left to contribute as a culture. Mm -hmm. That's really, that's That's, really pretty freaky.
1: It's that it's so fantastic. This is, you know, we've commented for the last few minutes about how dark and heavy this film is, but oh my gosh, listeners, we've spoiled a ton. We've spoiled more than you should have been listening to us. If you have not seen this film, please. goodness. See this film. It is it's so effective. wonderful.
0: I mean like you you really uh even split over two viewings you still kind of get wrapped up in the the general paranoia of the thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's so wonderful. Um I feel like I have I have a big idea for theme that is not substanced, or like that is not fully formed. It's like a midway pod person right now in my brain. Um I feel like you probably have something that you are sitting on that you would love to express for things. You'd like to yield. Yield, yield. You're a generous guy. I try to be.
0: Um, You say have something. I'm looking at one, two, three, four.
1: Good Lord.
0: Eight sort of thematic notes. Um,
1: Wow, I only had three. I'm sure they're all could be grexed together somehow. Like a little... Like a little man faced dog just running up and <laughs> <laughs> biting you in the butt. <laughs> that ain't no man faced dog. That's a, a dog body man. Oh my gosh, I can't even say that fast. Oh man. Dog body man. <laughs> so there's a whole like
0: there's a whole lot of inroads here and in fact I thought about just FYI. I thought about calling you earlier and being like, Are we gonna go full political here?
1: Oh okay. Um, I mean, it's a film that yields itself to that,
0: yeah, I know, but sometimes you're like, Don't do it neither, <laughs> um
1: listeners know by now, listeners know by now, um goodness
0: gracious i think I think the core idea worth exploring that I have a lot of avenues into is one of just division, mm. I mean, paranoia, even as an idea is the notion of. Entities set against each other, right? Yeah. So, one just sort of surfacing note is how sort of terrible, and I mean, gosh, you could extrapolate something I wasn't even intending out of this. Before, while while Nimoy is still even human, like pre what we know to be Pod version of him, right? His insistence on talking. Elizabeth out of what she knows to be true,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and there's a world in which I'm not saying you would do this in the moment, but you you might in a more normal conversation. Um, I don't mean, but a person could say like, "Well, both uh, sides, blah blah blah." <laughs> there's this is what I mean by political, like there's or an aspect of political there's this feeling of observation uh, the word perfect could never appropriately be applied to a human except the man jesus but definitely not ourselves so by no means am i laying claim to that um but there is an at least attempt to operate from an embodied christ likeness that won't be uh consistently applied but at least is attempted mm-hmm. that just observing The world we occupy, and especially the political world we occupy, that your eyes and your intuition and your spirit discerns the reality of a thing that dominant power would tell you and does tell us Mm. isn't really happening.
1: Yeah, right.
0: And it's just really fascinating to me that that's so present in the middle of this movie, which is we as the viewer know that she is correct in whatever it is. She's intuiting. Right. And yet there, there are these, uh, I won't even go so far as, Oh, he's a, he's a man telling a woman though. Some of that is present. It's, it's also just sort of, he's famous. He, from that fame has a certain level of power. It is power telling suspicion you're wrong. It's just this when we know she's not wrong. So that's the thing we can follow if we want, um, but again, I think there's this bedrock divisiveness. I don't, I don't totally know how to wrangle all of this. Here's another another movie thing, and then I'm going to pivot to some non-movie things that play into movie things. I mean, the whole opening scene is this a caper or a rat turd?
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah.
0: What we think a thing is. Versus what it really is, mm. like that scene is very indicative of where this movie goes. Mm. What do you what do you think this is? Okay, well, what you think it is is not what it actually is, right? Um, and so forgive me if these things amount to nothing, but as I've pondered this movie, random two random non body snatchers resources have entered my vision that are really feeding some of what i feel is at work in this division notion um this is going to be such a random sort of thing to have found you're okay uh j michael straczynski that may not be a name that means anything to you but
1: oh yeah um, it is Spider-Man, okay. long-term uh, Spider-Man writer, and I've got a book. Was by, long-term Spider-Man writer? Yeah, uh-huh. I've got um, a book by him called The Complete Guide to Script Writing that I uh, really? love a lot. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, really interesting guy, really great writer, uh, created Babylon 5, mm-hmm. which I haven't ever watched, but I just know he did. Um, spent a number of years writing the character of Superman once he left Spider-Man.
1: Oh, I he that, man. ran,
0: just literally randomly, I was on Twitter the other day, and it, it, that's it's pretty random because I'm actually not on it that much anymore, but he had retweeted a video of Christopher Reeve talking about Superman. Hmm. And the reason Straczynski posted it, he said, it all comes back to Zack Snyder. Um, <laughs> he said one of the reasons he doesn't like how the DCEU films narrowly define the S on Superman's chest as hope is he thinks it's meant to be broader than that and that people will have different inroads on what Superman means. Uh. And so he retweets this really lovely, I'll, I'll I'll send it to you directly, but this really lovely interview piece with Chris Reeves from clearly the late seventies when he was still, you know, occupying the role and where I'm trying to go with this is this notion of division, things that intend to set us against each other. Um, whether whether they pose as a good or not um, kind of is, is up for debate. Um, and again, this is a lot of disparate things that I'm going to lean on you to wrangle. No pressure. <laughs> um, but the interviewer says, well, what to you is Superman? It's a little more set up than that, but uh, essentially that's the question. And he has this really lovely response. And he says, a friend, we don't need a strong arm vigilante force we need a friend. Mm. People, people are afraid of each other. Life is over, overwhelming. We run around scared a lot. The heart of Superman is the genuine love of people. You always know he's your friend. Oh, wow. And he also articulates this really lovely image. He says, from space, what Superman sees is one single planet, one place. It is Smallville. Oh, wow. And it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, so you've got this notion, right, okay. of, like, Nathan's idealized, romanticized, like, there is a oneness that is supposed to be inherent to our human humanity, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. So So there's that. Let's put a pin there. Well, I mentioned during what you're listening to, or you know during our watches segment about another name for everything and it's interesting there's an episode it's one of the more recent ones the title of it is the great commission actually I'm sorry the title of it is reframing the great commission and even that title may offend a listener I don't know but it's this really beautiful sort of recontextualizing of of that you know traditional pole of, of evangelical life and the question a listener asks is this person was deeply concerned about the rise of violent attacks in the world that fundamentalist worldviews have multiplied and incarnational understanding remains on the fringes and the the, the question that then gets asked is can contemplatives evangelize It's a really lovely question.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: And what's really interesting is Roar goes on to kind of address this in a bit of a roundabout fashion, but basically says, um, I've offered on on the show before, you know, Roar specifically identifies um, uh, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. And he says, most of us, most of us live in the construction phase of life, what he would call the first half of life. And He says most conservative groups, it's not meant derisively, are construction construction phases of life, Mm. right? Like clear boundaries, clear parameters, clear strictures, clear discipline, clear whatever, like very clear stuff. And he says conservative groups have sharp edges. They have a clear mission and message. There's a clear in and a clear out. They communicate themselves better than others. I am drawing a parallel between what he's describing and the pod people of this movie. Mm, okay. There is very sharp edges. There is a clear mission and message. There's a clear in and out the first half of life. We need the conservative. If something is easy to join, it'll be easy to leave. Basically he's saying there is some value to those early stage of life in groups, right? Like right. it's how hel- it's helpful to have kind of a disciplined approach to life and that sort of thing. It's, what's really fascinating is he ultimately says, he says, I don't suppose contemplatives can evangelize. We are much better at leading people into growing up and waking up, but we don't know how to tell people to clean up. Hmm. And my interpretation of that was like embodied living hmm. versus in in group identity. And I'm going to pivot all of this back to the movie here rather clumsily. So why this movie can feel so dark. Is this sense sometimes that that I do feel personally in the real world of like, oh, my God, <laughs> the N group is increasingly larger. Yeah. And demonstrably, mm, I was going to say dangerous, but what I'll say instead is demonstrably not a thing I want to participate in. Right. And so what's hard about this film is the in group keeps growing is clearly not a good and the non-participants in the in group ultimately fail. Yeah. And so, you know, it's fascinating to me. It's hard for me to know, even if you're comprehending all these things I'm throwing out here, but I'm not going to position this dichotomy of like, the way I do it is correct and right and faithful and the way that mm-hmm. group does. It is not, that's not exactly where I'm trying to go because I do think there's a lot of value and a lot of different, you know, divergent sort of ways of doing things. But it is sometimes why I'm like, I'm just okay not being part of that in group anymore. Yeah. Like it, it, right. It's, it's, it's conventions are not things I want to participate in or, Align with. Mm. Um, Am I making any sense? Yeah. Is there any, any thoughts pinging for you of like, like what it's like to be observing of uh, a parametered group, but not feel a part of it to not want to be assimilated into it, but also wanting this sort of Superman looking at the world. We're all in Smallville kind of approach. I don't know. It's just this really fascinating kind of push pull. I don't know if I'm making a sl- lick of sense. No, I,
1: I i i i will tell you what i'm what i'm gathering from it. There is a difference between unity and conformity, and there's mm-hmm. a difference between a collective united by knit together with common narratives, common belief sets possibly even divergent belief sets but a common sort of fundamental connecting point uh that then simultaneously celebrate different expressions of those things different uh nuances to those things it's the old gosh I'm uh I might butcher this quote so please all of you out there who are more scholarly than I am uh show me some mercy but uh, there's an old quote uh, I want to say it's from Martin Luther, but it might not. It might not be from him. It's 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 um, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. Um, mm. and as as a sort of credo to say this is how we navigate the world. Like one of the things that it makes me think about. You talk about. The in-group, or the group of uh, the group of the changed, if you want to call them that, the changed, the turned, the uh, the pod people, once they once they have been sort of transformed and they've become this other thing, they immediately and consistently are like, we shouldn't have fought this. Like, it's, it's painless. Like, they immediately sort of, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it possibly a different analogy. They've drunk the Kool-Aid like now, like, okay, well the, this is the way to go. This is what everybody needs. And this is now we are a part of this mission. We're over on this other side. Um, and one of the things that haunted me about that scene that I referenced earlier, I'm getting back to your, uh, yeah. you know, uh to your point about the, the end people. One of the things that haunted me, because I'm just sensitive to this in general, uh, sensitive might not be the right word. I just, I, I, I it, it, it pings me whenever I hear it. I've now, I, I grew up in the church. I've, I've cut my teeth on church pews. You did as well. I, when, when Christianese language gets used in a non-Christian context, it pings me, and it's because. It's language that is very familiar to me it's 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 common to me, but is usually particularly in films like this or in contexts like what we discuss is in a situation that is decisively not religious, specifically when they the the group of the pod of them, including pod Belichick and pod uh Kribner, find them and they're about to inject them with the sedative and they ask them what will happen to them, and uh, Nimoy, Kribner says, "You'll be born again into an untroubled world," and that pinged me. Uh, obviously, because I'm like, "Well, that is uh, largely what people would say mm-hmm. was the um, was the appeal," you know. Uh, and this whole argument—I love that scene because it's quiet. It's a relatively quiet scene when they're arguing with it. Uh Matthew Bennell is is almost whispering to him, You're killing me. You're killing me. And you know, just the, the the dread, the heaviness of it that settles in uh as Kribner later says, There's no need, you know, we don't hate you. There's no need for hate now. And then he says, nor for love. Right. And and it reminded me, as so many things do, because it was an expansive and, and uh, wonderful piece of media uh, uh, in *Haunting of Hill House*. When she says nothing bad can touch them, and and uh, Daddy Crane says nothing good will either. You know, like I, I think there is this notion of, and I'll get to the to the in group thing in a second. I think there's this notion of when we talk about unity within a certain group of people, a lot of times what what that means to our immature minds and our immature sensibilities is look like me sound like me talk like me uh think like me all of all of those sorts of uh commonalities and mm-hmm. and i think that's what kind of determines the the idea of a you know of a click if you will or but you know broaden that out i don't mean like high school mean girls click but uh you know that that there's just They all look and sound the same, like they all, they just repeat the same language. And dude, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean here. I have lovingly but jokingly referred to people I know and see on a weekly basis that there are certain things that ping... And the people who know me a bit more intimately, we will joke about it when we brush up against it. But that, that like common language where it's like, oh yeah, I asked how you were doing and I totally got like church version of you. I totally got like, I got, I got this very plastic sort of, uh, you know, nothing to that at all. And there are those people, my affection for them is sincere. I'm sure that their affection for me is too, but it's like, that's the extent of the interaction. Uh, whereas there are other people where when I hug them or when we greet each other, then it is, it's just on a different level. There's a lot more complexity and nuance to it. There's a lot of uh, of, of flavors and, and differences to it. And I think that is something that um, you're talking about division, you're talking about certain groups being able to define boundary lines and everything. And I do think that it is a hard thing to sit in unity with somebody who is very different from you. It is work. Um, It's good work. I'll even go so far as to say it's holy work, but it's hard. And let's not make any mistake about the fact that it's hard. If it's easy, then perhaps it is not as diverse as you would like to think it is because it is challenging, it is difficult to sit in a space with somebody who does not have your same cultural experience, does not have your same perspective on things. Me sitting um, as a relative centrist, you, you talked about politics or whatever, me sitting as a relative centrist often feel homeless in the in the company of liberals or in the company of conservatives because I'm constantly trying to pull either in the other direction. And it's uh, it, it's challenging, it's difficult, because you have to find that place where in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love. Um, early in the film, well, actually more about midway through the film, Belichick says something that I wrote down because this viewing, I had to pause the film. I, it hit me so hard. He's criticizing Kribner, and he says this. He says, uh, or sorry, I keep calling him Kribner. It's actually Kibner. Um, Kibner's trying to change people to fit the world. And I'm trying to change the world to fit people, is what Mm. Belichick says. Mm -hmm. And it's one of his big critiques. He doesn't elaborate on it, but it's one of his big critiques against uh, the character Leonard Nimoy plays, his his work and stuff. And that stuck out to me so much, this idea of changing people to fit the world versus changing the world to fit people. And I, I wrestled with that for a minute. I was like, what, is that, what would that mean in the context of conversations like what we have? In the film, it can mean whatever Kaufman wanted it to mean or whatever the screenwriter wanted it to mean or whatever. But in the context of the things that we that we talk about, what does it mean to say, am I changing people to fit the world or changing the world to fit people? And in political discussions, in religious discussions, it, in in all manner of complex ideological conversations i think that very passive comment in this 1978 horror film really is worth concerning your consideration and can, and considering who you've chosen to surround yourself with who you've chosen to associate with who you decide for your own personal world gets in and stays out Whether or not you pursue trying to be part of a people group that you long for their acceptance and affirmation and validation or whether or not you are okay sitting a bit more in the fringes or a bit more on the outskirts or sitting in a place that does not fit comfortably. I I just keep coming back to that in this conversation that it just it doesn't have to be completely comfortable. I have I have I have people that I Well, and I'm sorry. No, I will I'll, I'll say statement and then I I want to hear what you have to say about what I've been saying. Um I have people in my life that I love them very dearly and their otherness to me is never really fully gone. Now that could be just because they they came from a different place or because they um are of a different nationality or because they uh just have a different political or ideological perspective or whatever it is, but just again, I cannot get past the whole I love them dearly. Their presence in my life is valued and rich and rewarding, but their otherness is never really lost on me. And my own otherness is never quite vanished from our interactions. Anyway. But
0: would you identify that this is gonna sound finger wagging. I don't mean it to be, but would you identify that hang up as an obstacle that should be overcome and or set aside?
1: Nope. Like, nope. I love it. From, oh,
0: oh. oh I thought. Cause, okay. Yeah. What I was hearing was you saying like there's an uh, impassable sort of aspect to the relationship. Mm. Okay. No, it's that's, that's it's, what I heard when you said that. It
1: is hard work, but I, but uh right. but but I love it
0: um well um, yeah and and you're identifying there's there's too much in the air to to kind of fully know how to wrestle all of it down but it is interesting to me your response to to my confusion there kind of substantiates what's percolating a bit and that's the necessity uh if if any good work is to be done To change the world to fit people, which I do think is probably a more faithful, healthier approach. Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Mm -hmm. Um, It's only to be found in solidarity of relationship. Like, Mm. for better or worse, it's interesting. So, like, that phrase that you're highlighting, uh, I don't want to change people to fit the world. I want to change the world to fit people. And we live in a very volatile sort of cultural moment uh where the only way people are going to know you love them which is the highest and only call is to achieve some sort of solidarity with them Mm. right it's not to like an amoeba glom them into your your emotionless unrelational group it it you know so much of What is likely, in my very low apprehension of social hierarchies' capacity, one of the reasons I think uh, a lot of our cultural sort of comings and goings are so volatile these days is you've had a sort of dominant culture for a very long time that now is being called to account by smaller it's the the Matthew banells of the world are are gaining a foothold mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and saying okay you're not going to get me you're not going to assimilate me but you are you are a problem the way you are existing you mm-hmm. the group the, mm-hmm. the massive group is this making sense at all um it is it is and it's our it's it's kind of our job whether by dominant culture, you or I, you and I are white men. You and I are Protestant white men in America. <laughs> mm. We are the dominant culture. Um, yeah, right. The onus is yeah. on us to work harder to sort of step out of that in group that we've existed in for a very, very long time, mm-hmm. and and had a lot of sheltering from. Yeah. To Dude, I know this is super random, because and I'm doing a lot of randoms this episode, and, and maybe ultimately it won't amount to a whole lot, I don't know, but I've listened to our Dark episode from a couple weeks ago several times since its formal release, and I can't get over sort of where we land in that episode. It's really beautiful and lovely to me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And I keep having this mental image uh, when we were talking about and I'm getting somewhere here where we were talking about Christ shepherding us all. Yeah. A, a, a a similar to a similar destination, but from different paths. Right. Right. And what, and the, the mental image that has come to me consistently since pondering this is like the hub of a wheel. And Mm. it's like the spokes are all the various paths we are all on. Um, Those, those spokes aren't, on top of each other they're at various points along the wheel but the yeah. hub itself to use the the language we use then is the pen the ultimate destination mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when i use language like you and i existing in the dominant group it's our job we we're in the pen yeah it, we we have to exit it mm-hmm. we, if 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 we are to be embodyers of this christ mystery the work required of of you and i and, and potentially of listeners who are simpatico to where we tend to fall. The work is to leave the pen. Yeah. And, and not rest comfortably in the safety of the pen, but to go out and, and help shepherd others that direction as well. So, you know, to the question from the Roar podcast, can contemplatives evangelize? He kind of settles on no in the traditional sense. You know, yeah. We, right. I, I, I don't know that I'm much a, person who's like here's the roman road I'm like no here's a lived faith here's an embodied life to to use our phantasm language here is me present before you mm. and mm-hmm. being present before and with you together we can develop a solidarity a relationship that finds some mutual Will to to goodness and health and wholeness. I don't I don't know what the hell I'm saying right <laughs> now. <laughs> well, and uh, there's something it, buried there. I'm so, sorry. So here's force the thing: you to dig it up.
1: No, no, no. I uh, I, I do think for just for time's sake, sensitivity's sure. sake, we should we should try to wind it down. But I think there's a complexity because I'm making no sense. But no, I I would not say that. I feel like the ideas we're struggling with here is relationships that that. Thrive and exist, never sacrificing one bit of uniqueness for another is in constant tension. And what I mean by that is, like, you're you're pressing forward for a relationship, which I would wholeheartedly agree. There are political aspects aplenty that, uh, like, we could talk about whether or not a person can or should hold to their outdated dogmatic religious beliefs. I just use the word outdated. I don't want to be reductive or dismissive there, but if they can hold to a particular subset of ideologies that causes another people group to feel less than, inferior, or cast out. At the same time, there is a way in which certain convictions are being pushed upon, pulled against, compromised. And the culture at large, like I think about how should I put this okay so i'm in in my head right now I'm thinking of the percentage amount of atheists in the world who have to say, if they say the pledge of Allegiance, they can't pledge allegiance to the country without either deliberately omitting a part of it or saying the words under God, which they would not believe in um, I'm also thinking of uh, people who believe and see the world uh, with a tremendous amount of concern that the things that matter to them or the things that they hold dear are going to just steadily erode away from them and they will lose traction on it. It is super easy to sit in any camp I'm, uh, I am I feel something rising in me, so just every listeners, co-host everybody, uh, bear with me. I think it is super easy to sit in any camp and think the world should look like this and even as i'm sitting here listening to you so much of what you're saying and pressing forward about relationship resonates so deeply in my spirit at the same time there are some things that i'm never going to be led into i'm just never going to i'm i'm just never going to be on the same wavelength as i'll i'll mention okay so i've talked with him about this um, so I feel a little bit more comfortable being a little bit more forthcoming. My friend Anthony Doris, who was on our show when we discussed uh, Get Out, um, we have reflected together that as much mutual affection as we have for each other, as much uh, you know, as we would joke about like brother from another mother and all of that sort of stuff, there is a part of that world I will never understand. I will never understand what it is like to be him. In the same degree, he will never understand what it is like to be me. And I'm not talking about superiority or inferiority. There is going to be a pervasive otherness that exists in the tension of the relationship. Can we sit in that place where we look at the other in another human being's eyes and acknowledge the complexity of that humanity and recognize there are certain things we're not going to be let into. um, But at the same time, there needs to be a fight for uh, like a, like a tension building fight to make sure that we can hold hands in the middle of these places uh, or, or bridge gaps that uh, we may never step fully into that other place, but we can extend a hand and bridge the gap to it. And I think that's where the hard work comes in. And I think that's where unity rather than conformity exists because it frustrates the, the, spit out of me when i hear uh, either conservatives or liberals um either atheists or believers it frustrates me to no end when i hear them in their language trying to remake the world in their image it frustrates me terribly i'm guilty of it and i'm someone who like let's get it back to the film because we've 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 wandered a bit but I mean, these are pod people who, without committee, have decided, yes, we're going to come, we're going to assimilate the world, and and everything will be better for it. End of discussion. End of conversation. And so what has to be lost is the diversity of the human experience, the diversity mm-hmm. of their humanity. They're going to just let it drift all away. And I will be, I will be honest with you, Nathan, I'm a centrist. <laughs> so it frustrates me sometimes because... I do recognize the value in somebody holding to and fighting for their convictions. I do get very brokenhearted when somebody on that side who is fighting for their their convictions then suddenly has blatantly made another people group feel like they are a subpar human being. And that offends me, and that upsets me. And where I sit, just individually, is in that sort of homeless tension Sitting there going, like, yeah, I believe you should fight for your convictions. Yeah, I believe this person is no less a human being than you are, and they deserve, they are entitled to all of the rights and privileges that you enjoy. And it, it, there's a lot of those things that just simply do not break down into binary solutions. There's a complexity to human experience. And in order to get to, uh, really, either place of home uh for these solutions that we're talking about, like to where somebody would say like, "Oh well, you just the world just needs to be like this, fill in the blank then a lot of times that means this whole subgroup of people has to b- deny some aspect of their thoughts or existence, and what we have you you started this whole conversation with division. what we have is we have people not in efforts to bridge gaps with diversity but rather in efforts to hold the line so that their boundary doesn't get completely eroded and eradicated and so then you have an ever widening gap as more and more people on extremes continue to insist it's my way or nothing and as long as they continue to insist that that gap widens because the people can't reach each other if they right. can't if they can't find a way to live in in otherness to live in uh the the place where I am I am different than you. And I'm not let me be clear here. I'm not talking about who holds the power because that's a different conversation. Sure, sure, sure yeah, yeah. It's a very different conversation. If we're having a conversation about who holds the power and what their power yields to people who are marginalized, that's a completely different conversation than what I'm talking about in terms of navigating relationships with otherness and and feeling like you can be you and be fully and wholly you. All the ugly all the nasty, all the stuff that really, probably, some of it should change, some of it should go away, um, and then sitting in that space and finding a way—if not common ground, if not standing in the same place—at least by God extending a hand to each other, for the the in the hope that your humanity can still exist. It's that moment when uh, Matthew Bennell hears Kibner or here's Belichick say uh, listen to him you know what Kibner's saying is right and Matthew looks at him and says you've never agreed with him a day in your life mm. and, and and like it's a throwaway line because he's just trying to identify the conformity that's at play there but then Kibner says that really haunting thing to Elizabeth because um, uh, I forget exactly what she says before that but she says like you know, they're going to they're gonna stop you or, they're, or we're going to fight you or we're going to stop you. We're going to find a way to stop you. And Kipner says back to him, says, uh, by tomorrow, you won't want them to. Right. And, and it's like all of the resistance, all of, the, all of that discomfort fades away. Dude, I don't like discomfort. I don't like it, but it is necessary for yep. me to well, sit in that space.
0: And to borrow some direct imagery from the film and at risk of beating a, a a cultural drum that is very of the moment and yet this movie's forty years old and it's woven into the narrative. When do the folks in the world of this movie become assimilated? What what do they do?
1: When they fall asleep become, when yep. they fall asleep. When they fall asleep. hmm. And, and that's yeah. a really powerful takeaway. Oh, absolutely. And and I do feel like the part that gets frustrating to me about social media interactions is the dismissiveness in all of it. I can stand here right now. I love you, Nathan. I can stand here right now and disagree with you, and you can say something, and I can say I don't. See it that way. I disagree with your opinion, and then you can argue with me for twenty minutes, like some trivial. Yes, you'll argue with me about some trivial nonsense or whatever. But you know, that's just a lighthearted callback. But I can disagree with you, and you and I, because because our friendship is not founded upon our ability to hold the same opinions about things, and the relationship that you that you and I have. uh, you know, been blessed to foster over these past couple of decades is not dependent upon us towing the same line with something. And it just, it hurts my heart to see, um, when, when people interact about a thing, uh, there's just no effort at, uh, Mm. trying to, I shouldn't say there's never any effort, but there's rarely any effort at it's definitely not encouraged. We definitely don't live in a
0: culture popularly that, that would encourage you to bridge build.
1: You've got to fight for it. You've got to fight for it. And I feel like the, I mean, there was something that was that circulated uh, not that long ago uh, among my circles that talked about like the challenge of like, hey, if I uh, like basically confronting and challenging, hey, don't call me a racist if I voted for President Trump. And in the same way, some of the thoughts and ideas came up, and it's like, well, then then don't necessarily automatically assume somebody who votes for a democrat is in favor of you know mass abortion or something like there's all kinds of assumptions that get made right. on either end of certain things um and i'm not i'm not drawing any conclusion here except to say this you have to see the other person the person that's speaking to you as a person with a rich personal history, a rich cultural history, a, a vastly different set of experiences than you. And you can find the common grounds to laugh about or cry over or discuss or debate or whatever. But if you're going to maintain that relationship, I think you have to come to a place to where you are comfortable saying, you are not exactly like me. You are not, you are, we are not pod people. You are not um, identical to me just with a different set of memories and everything you have a rich vibrant set of thoughts emotions experiences um full of that and to reduce people into subgroups subcategory is to is to pod them up is to basically say like well no oh so you're a democrat so you automatically feel all these things oh so you're a republican so you you automatically feel all of these things and It feels to me like the real challenge, the real hard work, I know we need to wind this down, it feels like to me the really hard work is to sit there and just simply be okay. You that I'm speaking with are not like me. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the fact that you're not like me, that you'll have a differing opinion. If we have something we need to work out and fight towards, then let's have the fight. Let's have the argument. Let's have the debate. But let's do so... With at least a shared agreement that the perspectives from which we come are going to largely inform where we're headed, and that possibly with this continual effort to bridge gaps and reach across aisles and with this um, continued effort to try at least to understand where the other person is coming from, which is a really big problem, is that we're not even interested in how that person got to that conclusion. We're all interested right. in just saying, well, you clearly feel this way and think this way, so you're just all of this. Um, and so then you get entire—that's that's where the real sort of uh, phobia of it all comes into play. It's like you are, you're scary and different, and I'm not interested like, in hearing what you have you... to say.
0: A man-faced dog, like what? <laughs> just, just, get out of here, man! Right? Scrap Exactly! Scram!
1: Um. So we've wrestled. I mean, like again, there's not a clean bumper sticker to put on this. Um. We are not just mass-conformed pod people. We have a diversity of expression, experience, and and understanding. An ideology, and I've said this before, you have too, several times on this show before, we need each other, and we need each other's, I mean, the body, the physical body um, operates by tension in movement, like by muscles constricting and pushing and pulling against each other, and that's how movement happens, that's how the body moves, is by muscles and joints contracting and constricting and pushing against each other and pulling on each other, and that level of movement uh, or, the, or that that fluidity is something that is healthy and is natural, but we've taken it to a toxic place, to where we dig our heels in and are unwilling to. Uh, it's okay if you fight change. It's uh, it's not okay to me um, if you are just not willing to listen to somebody who is not like you and not willing to hear their story and not willing to to try to understand. Where they're coming from. That to me is not okay because now you're just a pod person. Now you've just adopted the everybody needs to look and sound and feel like me. And if they don't, they're wrong and they need to be cast out of the way. And I personally am very uncomfortable with any ideology that would express that whole cloth. I think I'm done.
0: (laughs) I think you're a dog bodied man.
1: (laughs) I'm a dog bodied man.
0: Are you a caper or a rat turd?
1: Most You're most days caper. I'm You're most days caper. I'm a caper, but there Speaking are those capering, days. Mm-hmm. Shall we
0: uh,
1: caper on over to the fog machine? Let's do the it. Fog meter. Uh, this uh, this has been an unwieldy episode, but I think we can wrestle it down right here. We uh, uh, we. Uh, describe these uh, or we categorize these films by measure of the fog meter that of fear and god um kind of equates to its scares and its substance nathan i'm going to invite you to speak first about the fear measurement what would you give 1978's invasion of the body snatchers in the level of fear i think it's highly
0: effective um i think even knowing the movie and where it goes it still really does well what it does um it builds Dread rather successfully, and I, I think I'm going to land out of seven.
1: All right. I see your seven. I'm giving it a nine. Wow. I love okay. I love the the types of fear that this film pushes on. Um, for the substance measurement, this is an old story. Jack Finney, the uh, author of the original novel, has been made into four different movies. There's a, the metaphor itself is ripe with all kinds of different thoughts uh, and feelings, some of which are very, very difficult to wrestle down, as we've demonstrated for you. Um, I'm going to give this an 8 on the God Meter.
0: That's exactly where I was going to land, so I'm going to jump in your pod with you and give it an 8.
1: All righty.
0: What that means, friends and neighbors, is that in Episode 2 of Hashtag I Love the 70s, we give 1978's Philip Kaufman-directed Invasion of the Body Snatchers an 8 on the Fog Meter. That is a good rating.
1: That's a very high rating for the Fog Meter. But, most important thing is, Nathan Rouse, would you recommend 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers?
0: I'd go watch it right now if it weren't I would super duper late.
1: I um, would too. Yes, it's a fantastic film. Uh please see. I'd this watch movie. it with you. Oh, I'd watch it with you too. And then we could Thanks. argue about it. Um I this this film's amazing. If you haven't seen this film, if you've listened to the whole episode and you've spoiled everything and you still haven't seen the film, still see the film. The film's amazing. It's, it's wonderful. You will enjoy it. See the film. You'll love it. Um, Nathan, thank you so much for having this extensive Mm -hmm. conversation with me. Um, Next week, everybody.
0: I'm so glad, Reed, that our mantra is to explore. Exactly. Lord knows we're not good at explaining.
1: (laughs) That is so true. true. We're explorers. (laughs) We're not explainers. Um, So uh, Next week, we are finally getting into some installments from our top ten. And we are going to start with the, our first Jello Pudding Pop. <laughs> our first Jello Pudding Pop. Um, we are going to be going to the highest rated of that uh, subset, in a subgenre of the horror genre. Uh, you voted Dario Argento's Suspiria into your top ten, and we will be discussing it right here next week. Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome, brother. I hope, I hope anything I said made a little bit of sense. It <laughs> did. I can't you promise it did, did, but <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll figure it out in the edit.
1: You'll, you'll find right. the movie in post. I'll find it. This is the movie that we, that we found. All right. Um, all right, everybody. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Nathan. We'll see you guys then.
0: In the meantime, don't go to sleep.
1: <laughs> Bye, everybody. The Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. Or go to MoreThanOneLesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at FearofGodPodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey, and our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can now be found at tpublic.com. Just search for The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.